Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. All right, folks. I have a we have a very special treat for you today. This is the Petro Nerds Podcast. This is episode 33, and my guest today is the one and only David Ramston Wood. Um, he, I believe you refer, you like to call yourself by DRW. I still have you in my phone as David because I just, I also have DRW. Uh, we can talk about that momentarily. But today is Sunday, November 7th, 2021. And um, just, I like to timestamp these podcasts with oil prices because um, it's very important of like, oh, what was it then when they talked about that? So on Friday, November 5th, oil prices on the, from the Bloomberg Terminal were 81.27 uh, for WTI, 82.74 for Brent, and net gas was about 550. That's really important because we are going to start off on a, on a few different topics, um, and we're going to have some fun with this one because I'm sure uh, David needs, DRW needs no introduction, um, but, uh, and we can sort of talk about a little bit. Do, do you have a preferred title other than you, you run Hot Take of the Day, you have you have people know you well from your podcast. A lot of people know me from the podcast of being on your podcast from January. So I thank you for that. Boy, um, no problem. Yeah. So, and so this is, I don't what, really, you know, Trisha, I don't really, it's good. By the way, it's good to see you. Um, thanks for the it's invite. It's good to see you as well. Um, no, I don't really have a title. It's, it's, I'm like, I'm sort of, <laughs> I'm sort of like the symbol, the artist formerly known as Prince, which I'm not comparing myself to Prince, but it's like DRW is just so much easier than David Ramston would. And, then broadly across industry, I think it's how it's known. And, and as you know, it's it's a bit of a caricature of mm -hmm. the real David. And so DRW is probably my stage name. Um, so so we'll, we'll go with that. No, and no title. The hot take of the day has been a lot of fun. Uh, it's great to see uh, the world change and evolve. And I, I mean, I can't, as you know, I can't believe oil is 81 and gas is 550. Uh, but here we are. I couldn't believe that oil was negative 37 and gas was a buck 50 either. So uh, it, it, it turns out it works out. It, it turns out it does, um, whether, we, whether we like it or not and whether things are going correctly. But, um, you know, my, my middle name is Jean. I could just start a TJC, Trisha Jean Curtis. So I'm just going to start going uh, TJC and DRW TJ, podcast. TJC, TJC in the house. It'll, it's going to take yeah. about seven years to get the brand recognition. But then oh, in seven absolutely. years. Absolutely. That's all it it only took, yeah. I, I started Petroners in 2016, and it's only taken until now to really to, you know, go crazy. But with that, we have a, mm -hmm. we have a hard stop in like 45 minutes. And uh, David and I talk a lot, and we um, will be packing a lot into this. So I think he said on his podcast with me, if you play it back on slow speed, you'll have a bit, about 12 hours of Intel. So that's probably going to be the case here. And we have some big, four big topics I want to do. I want to follow on just because of what's going on in the market. And of what sort of happened last week, I put out a little Twitter video and uh, well, LinkedIn video on a, on a market rant and covered several things in this market rant. But um, inflation, investor pressure was sort of one of them. And in my last podcast with um, with Mark Rossano, we've talked about the last podcast, we talked about inflation, investor pressure and didn't get quite in this investor pressure, which is really actually the two things you've put out some posts on, on inflation. And I've really wanted to talk to you about that as well as investor pressure. And there's a great way to start this podcast because. Secretary, Energy Secretary Granholm um, neglected to talk, failed to talk about that when she was interviewed on Bloomberg. So we're going to do investor. We're going to talk about Secretary Granholm's comments um, on Bloomberg, um, which are I, I just think absolutely ludicrous. And, and this woman needs to be taken to task. And I'm happy to do that. Um, 
investor pressure, inflation, and then we're going to talk about the jobs report, which all these sort of things meld together. Um, so, and I know David is very comfortable with um, all these topics, so I I don't think I'm I'm throwing anything out of out of left field. So this. <laughs> I literally just, I was catching up on the news and I was literally just watching and I had to, I had to repeat it and watch it twice. Cause I was like, did, did she, is she laughing? Like, so secretary Graham is being interviewed on Bloomberg on, I think it was from November 5th and she's in Glasgow at cop 26. And she's literally laughing as these questions are being asked to her very seriously. And I think it's interesting that she's laughing because Democrats just lost, uh, you know, hand over fist in on Tuesday in an election night. And a lot of analysis of that is, is people saying they're really it's a rebuke of a lot of the policy measures of the big progressive moves. And I personally, I think one of them is inflation um, and price is everything. And oil prices are having a big factor in that. I was just in Pennsylvania. I was in a, in a community that doesn't have a, I mean, this is not a wealthy area and people are, I mean, inflation and, and oil prices are a big part of what people are feeling. And Secretary Granholm's comments were when they asked her that it was started out with what can the U S do to address this, to address this problem at home? What can the U.S. do to address it? And she laughs and says, the, um, she laughs and says, this is oil prices are, or oil's not, um, has nothing to do with the U.S. This is about, this. it's controlled by a cartel. It's called controlled by OPEC. And just completely negates the fact that the U.S. is producing 11.3 million barrels per day and was producing nearly 13 million barrels per day just two years ago. I mean, it's, it is truly remarkable. And I did a post on that this morning because it just, it's really struck me in the fact that, I mean, Biden did the same thing, right? I think on Sunday, first from, I think he was in Rome at the time before he was headed to Glasgow. But I think he said something along the lines of like, please OPEC pump more oil so we can drive to and from work. And then Secretary his third, his Granholm, like third major plea. Yes. Yeah. And, and Secretary Granholm is like, uh, no, I, we can't control it. And, and so I will say, I mean, clearly we've got where we are for a lot of reasons. We're here because of systemic underinvestment over the last 18 months because it wasn't profitable. We're here because EMP companies have now decided, as they should have done in 2018, to prioritize debt repayment, free cash flow, optimize spacing, better performance and better returns. And all of that comes with higher prices. What, what is shocking to me out of everything that, that Ms. Ms. Granholm said that was striking was this is the evidence we need to double down on renewables to take the the volatility out of the fossil fuel market. And it's like the fact that she doesn't understand supply demand or how pricing would work or that there isn't enough battery storage in the world to store enough power to rely on renewables is is so unbelievably just idiotic. And it's amazing but that these are our politicians. Is it that she that here's the trouble I'm I'm having because the you know Fatih Barol of the head of the International Energy Agency, um and I, the, I can't I can't you know shred them enough on on because I'm really have a bone to pick with him as well um because oh, he's, he's done the same thing they're not the International he, he, Energy Agency no no they're I'm, the solar wind agency. well exactly and he's doubled down on saying you know this is not this energy crisis we're feeling is it has nothing to do with uh you know, has nothing to do with clean energy, has everything to do with fossil fuels. And I'm, I'm actually, I've changed, I'm no longer going to say fossil fuels. This is the oil and gas industry and it's oil and natural gas. And, you know, I think when, when folks are, and the industry is not doing them any favors either of saying this is fossil fuels, because it's very easy to sort of, you know, pick on these guys. And I think this is where Secretary Granholm is the, the thing that she missed and what I wish the Bloomberg guys. And I don't, there, I have a lot of problems with Bloomberg in general because they don't push hard enough on their interviewees, especially on China stuff. 
I was impressed that they pushed back on her like they did because she is laughing. And, and I thought it was it was a really discredit to the American people who are paying um, who are paying a lot of money at the pump. And they cite that they say, look, you have a third of Americans or she, she said, I think she said what one third of Americans are, are feeling this and paying 30 percent, 30 percent of their income is going to energy. Right. Energy costs. And so she made made it clear to be saying that this administration doesn't want to penalize these guys, except the policy of the administration to deal with what he says, this this tripling of the of, of going down in OPEC and OPEC and pushing OPEC to produce more oil um, is ask them to produce more oil. And yet and he's doing that because he doesn't want the American people to feel high oil prices. We are the largest producer of oil and natural gas in the world. And she conflated uh, or mis, mistook or either she doesn't know the market, but she said, this is when um, when the interview Javier was, I believe it was him that was asking her um, about the restrict the the ban on fracking on federal lands, which it is a ban. It's in the it's in uh, climate change uh, the executive order fourteen zero zero eight. Um, it's written very clearly and it's been implemented and it's being actually fought against in, in court and they've lost and yet they still haven't opened up leases. And so he cites this ban of leasing and he, she says, we don't have a ban. We don't have, you know, these restrictions you cite. We have 7,000 leases that aren't being used. And she says the same thing that you said, was, which was if $83, if, you know, 80 something dollars barrel isn't going to get them off to produce, I don't know what will. And it's like, well, there's way more factors. It's the fact that they are being penalized from, from an investor standpoint. And it is really interesting to talk to you about this because you and I have had many conversations on where oil companies should be, how much they should be producing, the fact that the rig count shouldn't be going up. We've disagreed on a lot of that, um, on many things we, we have agreed on. But this is sort of the investor pressure is, I think, the single biggest thing that's driving, you know, we're, we heard it from ConocoPhillips in the earnings call. I haven't got to go through every single earnings call yet. But I was really struck by the Diamondback call because that they said it. They said it explicitly. They said they didn't view the oil market as constructive. They're keeping oil production flat and that they were concerned about essentially they didn't say we're concerned about investor pressure, but they said investors don't want this, and investors don't want this because of a movement from the a movement at the very top in the administration all the way down to the market. Um, and you have this—it's very real. You have the you have uh, Janet Yellen and the Fed and everyone talking about climate change. This is permeating into the market. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, I also I, I fully blame the Larry Finks of the world, and and you can go up in every financial institution, but you know BlackRock manages 10 trillion of, of AUM and Larry Fink is out there very actively saying we need to transition away. I found his comments in the last couple of weeks have been interesting because he's saying, well, what's happening is these public companies are selling assets into private companies and then they're polluting more. And so I use the example of BP selling Alaska to Hillcorp, you know, yep. and, and Larry Fink, I mean, the, the irony that a guy who does all his life in public markets and can only control public companies through their shares is lamenting the fact that oil and gas companies are doing what they should, which is letting prices be high, letting OPEC spare capacity get worked down, letting inventories around the world get managed, and letting prices go up to 100 bucks a barrel. Because unlike that CEO roundtable in 2019, where everyone came out and said, you know, we think stakeholders are just as important as shareholders and and the climate and, you know, a company's job is not to make money. Bullshit. A company's job is 100% to make profit. And I like 80 to to $100 a barrel oil for profitability. And U.S. companies would be idiotic to try and ramp up into that space until a whole bunch of other factors come out. So I love the setup. I still believe all oil and gas companies are massively overvalued, um, which is a problem. But then Tesla, 
is like a thousand times overvalued relative to Exxon. So right, and you, you have the, so you you have the market. That's the thing is you have the market overvalued, and this gets into well, sort of can I, I don't want to segue away from this just yet, but you have the market overvalued, and I I think that she does not. The fact that Secretary Granholm is explaining this to people, and one, you have you have the Biden administration saying, and they've they've tripled down on asking OPEC to increase output, which they didn't, um, and we can talk about that. Then you have uh, Secretary Granholm that's basically all, uh, reiterating the same thing and blaming OPEC for these these high prices, and it's not just it's not just high oil prices. And I, I can't get across to my clients and to in, investors and and everyone I work with and talk with and people listening to the podcast enough that. High oil prices, high energy prices, and inflation um, together are not something we have seen in my lifetime. And I think that is just extremely important to realize that in 35 years, you haven't really seen it. We've had high oil prices, and we had little bouts of inflation, but nothing like this. And it's, it's the speed at which we've had inflation, right? The escalation in the prices, the, the, ma- the, the trillions sloshing around the global economy, the, the, the third of the, all the money in the, in the system being printed since COVID, and like 25% of it being printed since just since um, since we've had vaccines. And so this is, it's like banana land for, we have all this inflation and actually the, that, that CPI, you know, the consumer price index that you can see on the Bureau of Labor Statistics, when you pull out just like gasoline and energy prices and, um, electricity and natural gas piped, you see that it looks way worse because they, they block out in gray. They have the bars that I'm going to show my clients is the gray bars that show recession. It looks worse than 2008 folks, like way worse than 2008. That's scary because in 2008, we didn't even have quite the inflation. We had this big price spike. So I, I understand where you're saying the 80 to $100 oil is great for the oil companies. But I think we're, you know, if it was just that, if it was just 80 to $100 oil and, and the companies weren't, didn't have all this ESG monkey BS on their back, you know, I would, I would say it would be a little bit different. But they're, yeah. it's, I think it's the ESG monkey on their back that, that, that's weighing on them. And I think lots of money can, lots of companies can make money at these price levels. If you cannot make money $80 oil, you should not be in the business, period. I mean, this is a money-making market. And I mean, companies like EOG are making, they're making lots of money. They are very, I mean, the shale industry, the whole, it's being debunked that you couldn't make money in, in oil and gas. Now, if you think the valuation is too high, I mean, the whole market's, market's too high and that needs to come down. But this is like banana land. When, you know, you can make money, you should be, I think if you're an oil company and you're publicly traded like a, an Exxon with that investor pressure that they've had, I mean, Exxon and Chevron and Shell have all reverted thinking and policies that they've had internally on oil and gas production. And they all did this within their last earnings call in response to their big, the big fallout that they had in May, all in the same day um, from investor pressure. And so the idea that I, I think the market is not is not really internalizing the role of investor pressure. And, the, and they're not realizing that where does that investor pressure come from? How does it originate? And that it's politically driven and it can change. And I keep telling that there's an evolution of investor pressure. And you know this, you worked at these companies. I mean, you we told these guys to buy into the Permian. The every, all the investors said, buy into the Permian, go bananas, any cost, who cares? Just get in there. And then we said, be free cash flow positive. And now we're saying, oh, and go hit these... Fi- these whatever ESG metrics that we haven't told you what they are. We, we haven't defined them. We haven't qualified them. We qu- haven't quantified them, but go do it because otherwise you may not get into this inf- fictitious long only basket that we have out there that you're probably not going to get into anyway. Well, I, you know, and, and I, I really believe that the thing that's on the back of people's minds, it's certainly on the back of my mind is when you see some of these financial institutions and financial money managers almost saying, you know, we want to change the lending standards that if you're involved in oil and gas, for example. So I think if you're, again, 
I believe that there's not anywhere near come as you know, companies should not trade at seven times cash flow because it's not related to their inventory and that there are only so many wells these companies can drill. So fundamentally, when I say 80 to 90, you know, it doesn't make the companies worth more. It makes them worth relatively more. And companies should by now know that we live and die by what OPEC decides. 2014, 2016, 2020. It, we just have to let prices be what they are. But in the back of these guys' minds, like I think Scott Sheffield and, and Mike Worth, what happens if they pull $100 billion of debt and they say, we're no longer going to loan to you? And you have all these investors coming into your stock telling you to go do 8% renewables instead of 100% Permian wells. I too would be buying back stock like EOG announced, like Chevron's announced. I would be paying down debt at massive rates so that the capital markets would have no influence on me. And I agree with you, all of those factors have to overlay in what energy prices look like. And yeah, energy prices are very, very high and it's going to be Millions will die this winter because A, there won't be energy available in some places and B, tens of millions will go bankrupt because they will not be able to afford the energy that they need. If we we have it is if we have a rough if we have a rough winter and even if it's not this winter, if it's down the road. I mean, it's uh, if this winter is is a slight, you know, is warmer than expected in, in Europe or Asia then some of these problems are some of these problems are 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 somewhat alleviated um but i i i i think the the seriousness of these these high prices are huge and the and the fact that these uh, the fact that these oil and gas companies back to secretary granholm's comments is that she can't she says she can't do anything to impact the us producers well there's quite a few things that would lower oil prices within a flip of a switch biden and secretary granholm could get on tv and just say we are actually we're rescinding that 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 executive order we did on on the ban of federal leasing on on federal fe- federal lands, that leasing we're actually going to lease. We're actually going to do the leases right now. We're going to open that up, and we're going to we're going to actually look at uh, the potential to build. We're going to look talk to FERC, and we're going to look at the potential to add a pipeline out of the Marcellus, um, because we know we need natural gas. We know the world needs it, and why not get it from the U.S. as opposed to other countries? And we're going to look at accelerating uh, permit approvals for LNG. Whether or not any of that actually happened. Just right. signaling to the market that you are open for business would be enough to move guaranteed oil prices would slide five bucks, if, if not more. And that might come back when when fundamentals reside. But the reality is, is that it would it would benefit. It would help. Um, and so saying that we're not contri- we're not a part of it is as uh, that we can't contribute is silly because, you know, you say that. It, 2014, 2016, all these times OPEC, and we have to let prices do what they are. We've we've impacted prices. U.S. oil production has been a massive influence on oil and natural gas prices globally, and we've capped the ability for what OPEC can actually do. And I'm personally, I'm more, I am more of a proponent of of stable oil prices around the 60 to 70 range. I think it's really healthy for the consumer, very healthy for the global economy, the U.S. economy, and I think that oil producers need to be pushed and and. That, that lots of things would have to shake out for people to make money profitably, but that's really it's a it's a healthy range, and it also prevents a lot of other crazy production from coming back. And well, OPEC, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say so, but I mean, again, let's go back to the core because we're talking about inflation. So the primary issue, and I know you will have talked about this with Rosano because because I know it's his like trigger button. You want to get him triggered. Um, Eighty billion a month has been spent on treasuries and 40 billion on mortgage-backed securities when the housing market is up 50% in the last two 100%. years. 120 speaking, billion a month. 
Yeah. And and so and so like of course you know I look at like Tesla since they came out with earnings is up twenty percent. They sold six hundred and thirty-seven thousand cars. They make five thousand of profit per car, and they trade at like twenty times, twenty-five times revenue when Toyota trades at one. They their yep. power generation business is not a profitable business, and their yep. carbon credits are going away. And yet all this free money is like surging into Ubers and Airbnbs and Teslas. And and so, of course, inflation is real because everyone has this money and there's no way to get returns if we want to fix things. And so this is to your point. I agree with you. That's what the government should do. But it would be acknowledging that they are 100 percent wrong on their climate approach, their budgetary approach, their covid approach. So they'll never do it. But the only fix is to raise interest rates today to two and a half percent. You'd have the oh, market. Or come- even 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 less this 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 interest rate thing. Cause I mean that's we had Jerome Powell speaking. I mean, we had Jerome Powell on um and I mean we could, we we should make sure we we say a little bit of something about OPEC before we close this because so much happened last week. It was amazing between Grand Holm and Jerome Powell and and the jobs report and and OPEC. All of this was last week, um, which is a crazy week. So Interest rates, though, Jerome Powell sits there and I listened to the whole thing and the Q&A and I was mind blown at how hypocritical this man. I am not a fan of the Federal Reserve. I am not a fan, though, of the administration swapping out Jerome Powell for somebody more progressive than he is because they have two mandates and they can't handle either one of them. They're they're blown out on inflation. We have a 2% rough inflation consumer price index target and we're at 5.4%. We're not going to hit that. And every every month they're like, don't worry about it because as long as we don't have month over month inflation, we've had month over month inflation every single month um, this year and everybody's feeling it. And so he's like, well, you know, that's not, well, basically they're saying we need to focus on employment. Well, employment did get a smidge better. We did trick down below the jobs report showed that we, we went down below 5% for unemployment. So you're nearing this, this like unemployment thing. And all they did on taper, on the tapering side is, uh, is reduce it by beginning asset. Uh, they're going to start reducing asset purchases for like <coughs> 20 billion a month by 15 billion. So that's it. 15 billion, only 5 billion for mortgage-backed securities. And the fact that we were putting any money into mortgage-backed securities from the get-go was crazy. I mean, they should have immediate. I don't understand the hesitation of immediately stopping or pulling on that. And they want to make sure that they think that I think they think this is helping when it's really hurting, because if they wanted to help the administration, they would. And they wanted to help the economy. They would have started tapering um, earlier because the pain would have the market would have reacted a little bit. But then you wouldn't even have to raise interest rates. You would have tapered. And now you could have say we raise them by 0.25 percent. You could slowly bring them up. But they're getting to this point where they're not going to have any. We're, we're, we're going into recession territory. We're going headlong into it. And then you'll have no tools in your toolbox without you won't have any interest rates to lower. And you'll just say, oh, we'll do more asset purchases. Well, you can't because you're just we already have too much money sloshing around the system to your point. So there's not a whole lot of tools left. And that makes and I don't think people are really appreciating that because, you know, we're going to have to raise interest rates no matter how this spins. We're going to have to raise it. And those interest rate raises are going to impact all this green tech, tech in general. I mean, Kathy Wood's portfolio is going to look disastrous. Um, and should that should already be starting to get priced in. Um, I, th- I don't agree with her portfolio from the beginning. And I don't agree with half the po- folks that are still doubling, you know, still doubling down on China with sort of the same idea of that, you know, we'll just live through all this stuff. It's, it's not a big deal. But interest rates alone, even as they start creeping up, people used to worry about that for oil and gas companies as, oh, they won't be able to afford it. And interest rates are going up. And this is green tech. And I, I 
the reason I, I say this investor pressure and this inflation is so important is because it weighs down to the private sector. It weighs down to the folks that I work with and do business with that are that are private. Um, and I work with public companies as well. But the the private guys are, you know, they're in the field and they're doing this stuff. And some companies, you know, thought that they were going to get bought out. Uh, they had an idea or conception that they might be bought out, you know, and if you have Great Rock in New Mexico, why wouldn't you think you'd get bought out? And now they're thinking, well, maybe we never get bought out. And that's because I think this, this concept, and these are multiple companies, you could probably talk to any, any you know, private New Mexico company, you know, in the Permia Basin and, and ask them point blank, you know, do you think you're going to get bought out? And the answer is probably going to be no, because of all that investor pressure and stuff weighing on, you know, weighing on these public companies. And the, sorry, so I, I actually go, I go a different way, obviously, with with one energy and, and just thinking about New Mexico in particular and thinking, you know, you look at Continental's uh, transaction for effectively the jagged peak uh, and parsley portion of that transaction so that Pioneer pulls out of the Midland Basin. It's only a 3.25 billion deal and Continental needs more. And so to your point, there's three people that are sizable enough, Ameridev, Taprock, Colgate, that fit that. And Continental, broadly speaking, now has a lot of cash flow, needs to move out of the Bakken because obviously they've been overdrilling it. They're not probably going to be the successful bidder for the COP package. They're probably not going to get Exxon's position. And so they go and bolt on a private who has ramped up to seven, eight, 10 rigs, gets to 100,000 barrels a day, doesn't have to worry about cash flow. And then they just turn their shares into an accretive transaction. I actually think that this new game of of Felixizing, I'll use that, I'll make that word up, of ramping up and selling a massive cash flow stream and allowing the company to use equity and then bailing out of that equity within six months, I think is brilliant. And we're going to see a lot of those transactions, I would think, in the next you know, six to 12 months, unless oil goes back to 50. Um, I've heard the same. I've heard, I have heard similar that people, some people think that's kind of the trend we're going. I haven't actually heard it happening. Um, and it feels like there's a lot of there's still gaps between a bid to ask spread and people's thinking on the ground. Um, and I mean, it just, there seems to be some some wideness there. And yeah, markets, the the stability in markets matter. And I do think this and I do think the role of I mean, the reason I bring up the inflation and or the interest rate and inflation and investor pressure is that what happens when if and when interest interest rates rise, because we haven't really been in this environment with this inflation, high oil prices, and this weird thing going on with oil companies and the issue and everything. So what happens when we have to, you know, the Fed realizes by December and, and January and February that, you know, they're forced to, they're forced to raise rates and they'll do it by a tiny little bit, but that's still going to matter to the market, right? Interest rates are going up. What happens is that that impacts tech, that impacts green tech, that impacts ESG. Is there any kind of you know, I think there have to be some policy stuff to change with it, which I don't think is going to happen. But is there any kind of pressure shift or momentum shift that starts tilting investor pressure a little bit more in favor of saying, OK, green tech and tech isn't going to work all the time. So we're going to have to start thinking a little differently. And, and oil and gas isn't quite as terrible as we thought it was. Yeah, well, 100 percent. And, I, and I, I've been saying this for, for a couple months now. I'll stand by it. Millions will die. Millions will freeze. And tens of millions will have to spend 30 times. I mean, and we, we've talked about this. XL Energy had 10.4 billion of, of 2019, 2019, because uh, the cold freeze was 2021. They had 10.4 billion of 2020 revenue. And in the four days, despite being hedged and not even in the Texas market, they spent 1.2 billion cash to buy natural gas to backfill for energy. That's 10% that utility prices went up. 
Plus, they're building $7 billion worth of transmission and solar and wind to get to Colorado's 85% renewable standard by 2030, which they're also making a 10% return on, which is 700 million. So you add 10% plus 7% and utility bills are going up for four days, 20% in Colorado. So it doesn't even need to be- trying to figure out how to- Sorry, go ahead, keep going. It doesn't even need to be that cold. And so when people realize that they are going to die, People are going to start going back to fossil fuels. They're going to go back to coal. And Bjorn Lomberg's been doing a great job, and we need to get the word out. The energy transition to meet Biden's net zero goals, which net zero is also total garbage. But to get to the net zero is going to cost each and every American $11,300 per year for the next 29 years, which means we're going to be paying $350,000 of cash per family member for an energy transition that may or may not change 1.5 degrees Celsius. And if you told people that, you would probably say, I could do for two degrees warmer. I don't understand why we're trying to stop warming. We should be trying to manage warming. That's it. Well, that's, but that's the whole, that's, I think where, and I talked about this with, with Chris Wright at length in the podcast I did with him, but I think this is where, um, and I really do encourage people. I need, I'm going to get Steve Coonan on the podcast. I think, uh, Bob McNally with Rapid and actually just interviewed him as well. And Steve Coonan was at uh, Liberty's Investor Day and I met him. But that book, Unsettled, is fantastic in that yeah, there's you know, the major sections in the book really just talk about, I mean, he's a, he's a pro-climate change guy. He doesn't disregard that it's happening, but he basically just, I mean, the, the, the thesis of the book is your ability to actually measure it um, and be accurate in that of what you're doing and, and impact it. And I, I you know, explained to folks that International Energy Agency report that started down, that did the IEA net zero report that came out this summer that said no new investment in fossil, in, in oil and gas, no new investment now, beginning now onward in, in oil and gas investment, which by the way, they said that again, just recently in the World Energy Outlook. And then in their oil market report released within days at the same time, they said, Oh, by the way, you need to be investing in oil and gas. So you, they're just speaking out of both sides of their mouth, which is just, it's, it's absolutely ludicrous. Um, and it, it's really hard to swallow. But the point is, is that that net zero report has a 52% probability of actually working. And they don't, no one says like, we're all going off the UN IPCC, you know, what their things are for 1.5 degrees. And it's not, it, it's not hard to ask questions of sort of like, well, what, what's the year we're starting from that 1.5 degrees Celsius? And when is that going to increase? And I think that's where it gets a little bit tricky because that's what Steve Kuhner brings up. It's not that this disregarding, it's just the, where are you starting from the measurement standpoint? I tell people, look, from a risk analysis standpoint, and forget the politics of it. I'm not here to debate climate change. I'm not here to do that. I'm explaining that when it's policy driven, and when you're telling people that you're going to have to pay all this money and do all this stuff and make all these sacrifices, which they don't realize they're going to have to make, um, and then it, and it costs them a fortune. I mean, it's it's IEA's numbers are trillions, four trillion be- every year between now and like 2026 and 2030 is trillions a year. There just isn't enough money for that. I mean, and it will bankrupt countries, bankrupt people, bankrupt economies. Like it's going to be devastating. And then it's the probability that you would even do the thing that they say, which is get to net zero of the 1.5 degrees Celsius from a predetermined date. Um, and then what happens if what, what happens in four years when everybody spends all that money and, and Excel has said we're going to increase rates 13 percent, your utility bill going up and call it 13 percent, which is going to kill families. I mean, from with with the other inflation that we have now at, at the grocery store, these people are going to be impoverished and it's going to be devastating. So with that, if the weather doesn't change, you know, if weather events continue and, you know, you can turn on 
it's it's no different. I did a criminology minor and I tell people this because it's like in 1994, it was the summer of violence. And, you know, everybody said this is not bad violence. and It was all over TV and it was crazy. And um, violence had actually like crimes had actually steadily declined and it was getting safer and safer. But it was very publicized as it was. Um, and I think every time there's a hurricane, every time there's a weather event, it's, you know, climate change and disaster. And it's a fear tactic to get people on board with this stuff. And so regardless of whether that's every weather event is climate change or not, if you don't change the weather, which they might not be able to, um, then, and the people don't see that. I mean, you have these county commissioners in Boulder saying the weather's going to go, the snowmelt's going to go back to exactly what it was, you know, whatever, from whatever date when we get to net zero in Colorado, which is just saying that one, we, we have a, we CO2 emissions have borders, which they don't. Um, so it's all, you know, all of this is hell bent on one single thing. And it, I just don't think it takes a rocket scientist to believe that, you know, it's, it's like, this isn't going to work out. It's politically driven and it's going to the economics of, of the system and the economy. And when, when people realize that it's not working um, and they're paying a fortune, it, it's going to break. Well, and I think, I think you touched base on it, right? When you talked about the, the, the elections in Virginia. I mean, Murphy, Biden, Biden carried New Jersey by 16% and Murphy looks like he's going to win by 0.2% um, over the Republican candidate. They lost Virginia. Um, they, they aren't able to put some of these policies because, again, if you look at the infrastructure bill, and I think regardless of whether you're Republican or libertarian or a moderate Democrat, Manchin is doing like God's work. Um, because he's identifying the fact that like, you can't just cut off a program five years early and then be able to retwiddle the numbers to drop things because once entitlements are in, they're in. And so, I mean, yep. I think that Democrats are in a huge amount of trouble in 2022. I think that Biden's mental health is obviously deteriorating at an unbelievable clip. And um, if you get a huge Republican win in the Senate and the Congress, uh, and then 2024, I mean, I think you can see us move. You think we moved away from the Paris Accord before. I could see us just trashing all of these guidance because we'll have had three winters between now and 2024 that show us how bad it is when we don't have energy. And the conversation the will be about trade-offs. Except the problem is, and I don't I don't want to get into politics too heavily, but we had a lot of Republicans vote for this infrastructure bill. And and Joe Manchin, I have to say, is everybody, he is the MVP of of both of, of of energy and and basically anybody who's modestly fiscally conservative, he's your he's your most valuable player right now because he said in the same not that he was being interviewed and he basically said, why can't we produce more energy at home? Why are we why are we beholden? He basically said we have he said I we have a pool of natural gas under my state. Let me produce it and we'll help solve this problem. And he's a hundred percent right. And you can't you can control if this is about emissions, which it you know I. It's beginning to just it can't really be about emissions if, you know, the U.S. oil and gas production contributes only one percent of U.S. emissions. And yet all these companies are killing themselves to hit these fictitious ESG targets and then, you know, hoping that they'll end up in a long only portfolio and their stock will go up, um, not thinking about exactly what the 10 percent capex they're spending um, on, on all this ESG stuff and whether or not it's going to that it's going to give a return on the investment. I mean, this is the I wouldn't say this is the come to Jesus moment, but it's just a reality is that you can produce this stuff at home. And if you can actually produce it safely and cleanly and with humanitarian standards and um, and it's needed and this the, the natural gas being a core element to this, which 
you know, when Secretary Gernholm said it was this was about, uh, she said this is a global gas market when they were talking about oil. It's not a global natural gas market. I mean, we do influence natural gas prices uh, on the spot market because we export around 11 BCF a day. But this is a this is a global oil market, and we also influence it with with our oil production. I mean, we don't have to do. We could increase natural gas production and impact global natural gas prices. Not a ton. It's not going to be the same if we did oil. But you could, yeah. If we if we rose oil production 500,000 barrels a day, we're going to impact the oil market just because we're going to spook spook OPEC. And I do want to pivot one second and, and get, go into OPEC before we switch yeah. into closing out the stuff. So OPEC plus did have their meeting. And so after, which makes, I think it makes the administration look incredibly weak. I don't care if you were, if this was a Republican administration or a Democrat one, if you were calling on Mohammed bin Salman, you're calling on OPEC plus to increase output and you're begging them for like the third time and they don't do it. One, it's showing that, um, and, and the foreign minister for Saudi Arabia has made it clear he was on CNBC this earlier this week, CNBC World, and he said, we haven't heard from him. So they're saying we're not hearing from the Biden administration. The Biden administration is using, you know, the media to talk to them and saying we're, we're calling on them. And it makes the U.S. look weak to be asking for, you know, the, these countries to increase output when they're basically said we're increasing 400,000 barrels a day every month. They still have, you know, what probably what, 400, 4 million barrels a day that they've they've continue to keep off market, but they're going to add these barrels back. And anyone who thought that they were going to add more than that, they're not. They, they, it's not smart for them to be like, oh, OK, Biden, we'll just go increase output because you said, even though that could create more volatility in the oil in the oil market. And given that this oil price increase, the most recent surge is not about oil. It's actually about natural gas and not these countries really not having enough storage of natural gas in hand. And so I, I don't I don't really you know, I'm not defending uh Mohammed bin Salman or Saudi Arabia or, or members of OPEC plus necessarily because they tend to not agree with them on many things. However, they're right here. I mean, they can't, uh, they, they can't, they're not, unless they're adding natural gas into the system, this really isn't going to solve it. And it also just shows that the whole system is is broken and ridiculous when, and nobody wants to publicize it, certainly not Secretary Granholm, that people are burning. De- we still use heating oil in the Northeast. People are burning diesel. I mean, those prices are going to be ridiculous this winter. And in, in the U.S., prices will be high because of higher natural gas prices. But abroad, they're burning, uh, they're, they're burning oil instead of natural gas in these power plants. At a, at, and they'll be doing this all winter because they can get the oil and they can't get the natural gas. Yeah, I mean, I think that ties to BP, although I don't know if I really believe BP because they're, they're no longer an impartial observer any more than the IEA. But they did say they think global demand is back to 100 million barrels a day. Um, you know, and again, I would I would quote Mark Rosano. I think he talks about right now floating storage of oil is kind of back to all time highs. Um, so so I I mean, stru- structurally, there's I agree. OPEC, why would you sell your barrels at 50 instead of at 80 when you know cheating will occur? There's still an open question on how strong the economy is when developed nations start raising interest rates and going into a winter where it might be a total disaster. And I agree, it is about natural gas, it is about oil switching, but I still think there's just so much free money that's speculating on things. And again, for Tesla to add 200 billion in market cap on 100,000 Hertz cars, effectively, and earnings, yep. you know, Toyota says, sells 12 million cars a year, has 284 billion in revenue. Tesla sells 850,000 cars a year and has less than 50 billion in revenue and trades at like 25 times Toyota's multiple. It makes it makes no sense. And so with these financial guys just chasing like the casino, it feels like 2008. It feels like 2000. Yes, yes, and- this, this, exactly. This feels like 
And, and you can see it, especially, I mean, you, it feels like, and all the, I tell people like what happened in the early 2000s? Yes, the market continued to run up. What happened in 2007? It continued to run up. And the data's out there. The, built, the things are out there. If we just had inflation, if we just had a high oil prices, if we just had this, this stuff going on within China, one of those things would be enough to get people's concern. But we have all of them. And I do think that the, the high, oil price, high oil prices in the context of this global economy, people keep interpreting this pent-up demand as this, uh, I want to say they interpret it as like real economic growth. You, you, you forcefully shut down, artificially shut down the economy, shut people in their homes, and they stop driving. And then you open it back up. People do have pent-up demand. They're driving and they're seeing people. And, and we've had incredible, resilient uh, gasoline demand in the U.S., which has helped offset significantly oil demand in the U.S. And But people had this previous thought where, oh, we'll never go back to normal. We'll never go back to those numbers. We adjust and we eventually go back to things. That's what's happening. You know, China has not started flying yet internationally. When that happens, you're going to start seeing, obviously, oil demand will, will, will go back to those levels. However, this pent-up demand, it's like, how real is this? I mean, we, I think I, when I was talking with Mark, it was kind of like, well, look, how many months of data are people just going to just say, we're going to eat this inflation, right? We'll just keep eating. It. And I think part of it is it's, it's this holdover from the pent-up demand of, well, we haven't eaten out much because we didn't before and you only live once. And so you need to do this. I think it's starting to, we're going to feel this impacting the consumer and they're not going to feel as good about, I mean, these high energy prices and inflation, unless they get under control, are going to impact things. And I think abroad, particularly in China and India, where in these emerging markets where oil demand has just gone like this, regardless of price over the last several years, it's a real concern. It's that it, prices are going to begin to matter. They, I'm not saying right now that people are changing their behaviors, but I mean, we even heard this over the summer. It, the Asian markets are feeling it, right? It's not, you are going to impact you're going to impact oil demand growth and oil demand growth tends to impact oil prices. So maybe we just cap out of this 100 million barrel day market. And that, that's just reality. I don't think we're declining demand, but I think the recession risk is real. And I think the global economy is way more vulnerable than people realize. Well, I'll t I mean, I'll tell you what I, I mean, my biggest issue is, is the fantasy land games that television's playing, right? So I, I had, I have two stories. Um, I met with my Wells Fargo advisor, our annual thing, and they're like, don't worry, the economy, you know, it's growing, it grew 6% in Q2 or whatever. And I, and I said, I said, okay, but you understand you're comparing to a baseline of when things were shut down. So I go back to Q4 of 2019 when the S&P was 3,000 and the U.S. economy was 19.5 trillion GDP. And right now we're like 19.8. So we are above seven quarters later. We are above what we were in Q4 2019. But the stock market is also valued 60 percent more. And people yep. are spending things that they would that they haven't spent the last seven months or 17 months or whatever. So that is insane. And then second, I'm part of an investor group and we bid on a house in Denver. Um, they it came on the market Friday. The bid deadline was Sunday at 10 a.m. We offered uh, uh, 7 percent over list cash in bags delivered to the house two days after the bid deadline. Zero inspection, zero contingencies, zero financing. Literally, 7% overpay would have dropped bags of cash on Tuesday, lost by 10% to a similar option. So the house went 20% over market in three days for a really, really, really shitty house. And like that is the problem. And it can only be fixed by the Federal Reserve, who, like you, I have zero faith in. 
and they are ignoring all of the symbols that say that this economy is overheated. And they, I, th- that's a, you, your post, that's what got my attention on the housing thing, because it's, it's very real. I mean, these, these housing prices are out of control and the bill, even if you could afford it, and, and I think a lot of people are getting stretched thin. So that's, that's a, another whole thing. And I, I mean, people are, you, you walk around, you look at the couples that are looking at the houses and, and buying houses. And I mean, they got the scare face on of like, okay, well, I guess we're going to buy this for 800,000, whether we can afford it or not. And well, guess what? If, if the economy doesn't look as rosy and things get a little thinner and I do have a question to you. What, because I want to get this back to this jobs thing before we close it. And I do want to ask about this, the, the housing market when we think of, of China and, and Evergrande and their housing market compared to ours. But so these, these people are, I mean, nothing is going to solve this housing bubble unless we have higher interest rates, right? Mortgage, mortgage rates have to rise in order to cool this down. And the global economy cooling itself or the U.S. economy cooling could do some of that, right? Because people just aren't going aren't to buy this. But these investors, these money sloshing around the system, that's screwing over the average person being able to buy these homes. Um, but the jobs report basically said, hey, we have a, and, and this, the Fed's going to be in trouble with this because the jobs report, unemployment came down below 5%. And, um, and it's, it's, it's still very sticky. Um, things that we, we have, I think, 4 million people that have not re-entered the workforce. And no one can understand, are they, basically on CNBC, the discussion was, are, it, there's a couple of reasons why they wouldn't. And it's because they just retired and they're living off savings or, or there's still enough benefits in the system. And I think there's been a lot of confusion on, I think, when the unemployment benefits rolled off, the, the, the extension of the, like the, the big extra package. People were getting like $400 extra, I think, a week or something like that or a month. I, it, it was a huge number. That's where we saw it over the summer. It's 400, Definitely a week. Yeah. 400 a week. Yeah, which is, I'm sorry, it's insane. That's a, it's a lot of money. Um, so that was your extension. Those, that has rolled off. But it doesn't mean the unemployment has completely rolled off. And I don't think all the benefit, like the, the things are still sticky within the system. Because I was in Pennsylvania. I was at a Hilton in this um, in outside of Pittsburgh in Cranberry. And I'm at this Hilton and the I go in there and I say, I asked for my room and they put me right by the, you know, right by the road. And I'm like, I just, I, you know, I don't want to be picky, but I'd love something a little quieter because I just desperately need some sleep and I'm a light sleeper. And he was like flustered because he's like, you know, we only have so many rooms open. And I was like, anything that's quiet. And so he moves around and I asked him, like, what do you mean you only have so many rooms open? He's like, yeah, we, we only have a handful of the hotel it, that's open because we can't get any cleaners to clean. Yeah. And and he explained to me that people interviewing for the front front desk job positions at the Hilton in this in this town um, are had. He said they have no experience and they they expect managers pay. And he was like, they expect what I'm getting paid and I run this thing. And it was insulting to him that that's what they expected with no experience. And because he had done, you know, he had put in the, the work and the experience. And I was thinking, you know, when I heard that jobs report, the literally the next morning um, when I'm in the hotel, I mean, and, and thinking about what the Fed said, what Jerome Powell said of that, you know, we do have to be concerned if, if, if wage increases keep going up, that's problematic. I mean, it's huge because as a small business, and I am a small business, and I would love to hire a couple people, but I, I absolutely couldn't afford to right now, especially because there's no way I could get somebody at a reasonable price that, that's probably reliable, and those prices are going up. So if you're a small business and you want to grow, you're screwed right now. And America's built on the back of small businesses. So the growth there, I think, is going to be very, very painful. Well, I mean, but I think that there's there's so much to, to unpack on that. So I filed, because I obviously, I filed an extension because of all the K-1s I have. So I filed a tax extension. So I had to file it October 15th. And my tax guy said, I got $8,000 of stimulus. I got $8,000 of stimulus. And I get the child tax credit for what? like whatever. Yes, there is no reason. And so like, you know, again, 
I don't even know if 8,000, I mean, it's obviously a lot of money, but like for someone who was working at a restaurant making 15 bucks an hour, 10 bucks an hour, whatever, $8,000 if they have no saving proclivities, they can't go buy a house and the eviction moratorium, which I'm also an investor in a building in Ohio, and the eviction moratorium effectively meant the tenants just didn't pay for five months, yep. saved $7,000 and then just left. Yep. And and they never have to pay it. So there is this latent excess cash yep. in the system that 100%. non-savers can rely on and that, that we're seeing manifest in terms of no jobs. And you can see it in the difference between the unemployment rates in red states versus blue states. Um, that's that's definitive. I think, you know, it, it's, it's going to be crazy. But you are right. On, on the investor side, the fact that I'm trying to buy a house, our Airbnb in, in Arizona is going to do a cap rate of around 10% this year. And so when I can make 10% on a house by Airbnb in it, I'm going to go buy multiple houses, not live in them, rent them to right. other, you know, fancy Airbnb because that's where you get the most money. And it is taking inventory out of the market that's hurting, mm -hmm. you know, the working families. So we have totally set this up for ourselves and it is going to crash horrifically badly. Because what, what happened in 2007, 2008? Lots of people, it was most people had multiple homes. And, you know, I had a hard time crying for people when it was like, well, they're protesting. And, and I'll be very honest with this. When people were protesting on Wall Street, young people were protesting and, and they were rich kids that, but they, you know, they had to take a gap year in college because their parents had four homes and, and it lost three of them. And I thought, okay, well, maybe you shouldn't have bought four homes, but that's what's actually happening right now. And things can change. And yes, interest rates are low and they're fixed and it's different from these adjustable rate mortgages. But, you know, there's this thing going on in China of oh, oh, many, many, many things going on in the Chinese economy. And they have a housing. I mean, they have a real housing crisis that's going on. That's that's front and center. We just don't hear about it because media doesn't not cover it well at all. But I mean, the, our property sector at the time, at our property sector, when we crashed and took down the global economy uh, was one fifth of, of the of the U.S. economy, roughly. Um, and our, our housing sector and in China, the property sector is roughly one third. I, I think it actually could be a little bit higher given all the, the knock ons, but it's roughly yeah. one third. And every everyone knows that it's it's, um you know, it's not just Evergrande. It's every single little company. I mean, Country Garden, all these companies, you're going to turn on Bloomberg tonight, turn on CNBC World tonight. That's what you're going to hear about is more of these is more of these companies um, that are more of these uh, real estate agencies that are going under. And the problem is, these folks have been out of, uh, they haven't been building, they've been out of work for a long time. And so it's not just them not paying bondholders on foreign bondholders. It's that what's going on within the actual, within the actual system. And they are a huge, huge uh, economy within the global system. And if they slow, not saying it's exactly like the US where it trickles around the globe, but if they slow, it certainly slows things down like energy consumption, um, like oil consumption or potentially, and which will slow down, which, which could impact oil prices and could impact the global economy. It's, I mean, again, there's all these risks. And, and the last thing, you know, that I would touch on that we're not even talking about is the OSHA mandates. And I use oh. Walmart. I use, I use Walmart. Now, I do agree with Ben Shapiro on this one that similar to the CDC eviction moratorium was not legal. The Supreme Court ultimately ruled that it wasn't legal. And it was just to be able to say to the voters, we did this. I do believe that this OSHA guidance is such a broad overreach of unconstitutionality that it will ultimately not pass. And therefore, the Democrats will be able to say, 
well, we did everything we could and it got stopped by Republican judges and it got stopped by this, but we tried it. But I mean, Walmart has 1.6 million workers of which even if you use the federal, like national average of vaccinations is 70%. So even if you said that the, the low income wage earners who you know have a lower vaccination, but at 30%, that means 533,000 employees need to test weekly for 30 bucks, which means that Walmart will have to pay for those tests most likely, which is almost a billion dollars a year Walmart will be spending on testing. Like that is, you know, that is not sustainable. And when you see Southwest canceling airline flights, oh, American yeah. canceling flights, and you know, I mean, if, if my company goes to a vaccine mandate and test, I, I, this, I'm going to make a stand. I could pull an Aaron Rodgers and just go through the testing, but it is so non-scientific and so irrational to force people to test. And then they're testing negative and you're making them wear a mask when they've already proven that they are not the ones who are passing the virus and vaccinated and unvaccinated can catch and spread. It's so it's, this is where I draw my line. And I think that like a lot of people will leave the workforce temporarily and then think about the supply chain challenges when well and that's that we didn't even we didn't even get into any of the supply chain thing which is all whole knock on of the jobs thing and and, and the shortage of truck drivers and and all kinds of all kinds of issues things it's a whole another podcast on supply chain but this thing on um i, I think people people don't want to talk about because it's controversial people don't want to say well do vaccine mandates actually impact employment and i think it's very clear in in places i mean police force in chicago and lots of places they are impacted and people are quitting their jobs the quit rate is very very high the Fed admits this. I mean, we're hearing this in the beige book and stuff. And so vaccine mandates are, are impact to this because people, certain people don't want this. The other problem is that, you know, I mean, I think it's it's Pfizer and Merck both now have a pill. And so it's like they both have a pill to treat this. And so you have a lot of folks debating on whether or not where are we going to go with this? And it's like, well, if there's a pill to do this, it's kind of like game over in the U.S. But then you still have. And I think I, I'm just quoting because I don't want to I'm not trying to bias anybody on this, but the Potomac watch, uh, the, the woman that's on Potomac watch for the wall street journal, she's just, she's a good, uh, a good analyst in terms of, of, of spewing this stuff back. But I mean, the, the, what happened within the, the election on Tuesday night. And I, I truthfully say this from a, uh, a risk, uh, economic risk standpoint for your businesses, you have to follow politics. You really do because it's, it's impacted the economy. It's impacted stuff so much this year, especially from an investment standpoint, and it impacts your trajectory of how you run your business going forward. And what happened on Tuesday night when I listened, I saw Politico and and uh, and CNN just pop up on my Apple News feed was like, you know, this is not. It, it basically both of them summarized it and said um, the loss on Tuesday was not about a, a, a referendum against Biden. It was really that they wanted him to do more, not less. And I thought, no, there's not a first chance in hell. The loss on Tuesday was about. Uh, it was about simple things like inflation and the fact that it was a it was saying we are we voted in a guy who we thought was a moderate and we were told by the media that he was moderate. We voted him in and it's been progressive all the way. And I have to tell people that this is not, you know, I mean, we do have real communism in China. And we do have more socialist governments in Europe. And that is that social spending. So what this what this administration has tried to do is pass social spending. We didn't have real concerns about inflation until Biden came into office because we didn't have entitlement programs as part of the stimulus packages. Now we do. Entitlement programs don't go away. You continue spending them forever and they cause real inflation, entrenched inflation. And that is what Scott Jerome Powell in a really tricky spot because he has to admit and he would have to admit that the politics side is impacting his job and it's not making it easy. And he is in a very, very tough spot because those entitlement programs are very real and that spending is real. And it's um, he's got 
they've spent all the money, but the fiscal side has spent all the money. And I, the people are not happy. Uh, that's it. I mean, the people don't are, are saying that this is not what they want. And Manchin is saying, uh, yeah, I'm not going to go for it. And and by the way, Purdue, we want to produce more energy here at home. And he's a Democrat. Yes. We are we are we are in a pickle. Um, and uh, I'm glad that you're chatting about it. I know I'm chatting about it. And uh, maybe they'll make a movie, The Big Short 2. But uh, the key, the key will be we'll have to bet. And I will tell you, all, I will acknowledge I did go. Sh- I went short energy last last week. Um, really? Now, I was amazed that oil moved from 85 to 79 and my short went up like 1%. So I, I can't exactly explain why oil would trade off 7% and the companies are still basically flat to it. But I do see, I mean, it's going to go like as everything goes, I think we're going to see the market have a correction in the year end. Personally, not investment advice. And I think that the energy complex at 85 oil and 550 gas feels rich. For what the world needs, to your point, inflation is high. That's bad for the economy. It's bad for spending. It's bad for the reopening. I think that you know we're we're headed into winter. We're gonna see cases rise in COVID. There's no doubt to me. Like we see the efficacy, two of the three are below 50 percent, which at least as I do the math says you're more likely to catch COVID than than not when you're below 50 percent. Um, Broadly speaking, there's a lot of bad news that just everyone's glossing over. And um, I'm, I'm thinking the next 45 days is going to be pretty painful. I think uh, I, that's a great way to summarize the podcast. So I think that's a, a, a very good way to close. Um, and I, I don't, don't tend to disagree with most of those comments. I think that the oil prices, when they backslid a little bit to 79, I'm, I didn't want to hone and hark in on, but it, it, I just kind of tell people, especially clients and especially people I talk to and just like pick up the phone is, yeah, when it can do that, it tells you something, right? It tells you that okay, we had a little, a little bit of a stock build two weeks in a row in the U.S. Uh, for 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 stockpiles, and it's the fact that we had any stock build, right? And then you look at the actual, you know, we we actually have very good data in the U.S. for for oil demand, and you just saw like where did you see some of those like other oils? The category other oils for products supplied was down a smidgen, and that other oils is there's just jet fuel in there. So we tend to, you know, we everybody's glossing over stuff. The data eventually comes out and it lags a little bit, but we see like, where's demand? Does demand get curtailed on things? And I think we, to your point, 45 days over the winter is going to be extremely important of of how the, how the winter sort of plays out. Doesn't mean that the market's not going to continue to trek higher and people aren't going to go crazy about Tesla and ridiculous evaluations, but that doesn't mean it's right either or it's reflecting reality. Well, speaking of, I am going to go add to jet fuel demand because I'm going to the airport. To oh, hop absolutely. It is great to see you, Trisha. Thank you so much for the invite on. Great to see you as well. Thank you so much. All right. Talk, talk soon. All right. Bye. bye.